Hi, welcome back, everybody. I am here again with Professor Larry Kadabacker to discuss his book. We are discussing Chapter 12, Resist and Reconcile, the Opinions of the CPC Central Committee and the State Council Supporting Chenzhen's Pioneering Demonstration Zone with Chinese Characteristics, Monday, August 19, 2019. How are you doing, Professor? All right, all right. That was quite a mouthful, too. Um, and I just wanted to point out, we have behind me the um, the cover for the paperback edition of the book. Uh, Matthew has got the ebook uh, book cover behind him. So look out for the book. It, it is available for ordering uh, in either paperback or EPUB on Kindle and the other large retailers. So buy early and often. Um, you never know if I sneak in a, a, a different set of essays from one to no, I'm not going to do that. But yeah, so there it is. And um, and I am looking forward to discuss uh, a chapter that's actually quite different well, from the others. It, this was one of these aha moments. Hmm. Well, you're you're a natural Billy Mays out here just selling your product. So I'm proud of you. Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> you know, first I'd like to say August 19th, 2019, when you wrote this, I, I like to put in perspective where I was when you were writing this, because I didn't know you at this time. Right. And um, I, of course I looked you up because I looked up all the professors here, but uh, uh, August 19th, I had just moved to Penn State. And so that's why I can like register exactly where I was on this date. But getting to this chapter and where you were on this date, let's talk about resist and reconcile. Uh, to resist, you must reconcile, to re reconcile, you must resist. What does that mean? Right. Essentially, it's a it's a rhetorical it's a rhetorical trope. And and for those of you who who will get the book, um, there are a number of chapters where I go back uh, and look at the way in which uh, and I'm going to mispronounce it again. Guigze, uh, the the scholar from Goy, um, and one of the earliest and and most profound. Uh, writers of Chinese rhetoric, uh, how some of those techniques might uh, have, might contribute some insight to what is going on uh, in, in Hong Kong. And I found uh, Resist, Reconcile, Wu He, uh, along with the, uh, an earlier one that, that we talked about, which was, um, which was uh, the notion of assessing or Quan uh, to be, uh, to be quite relevant in, in this context. Um, and again, we're not dealing with opposites. We're dealing with uh, a tension between forces that, uh, in, in, in a sense, uh, a dialectic here that when used appropriately can lead to uh, a, not a synthesis, but lead to the attainment of the objective that you're looking at. And here the question is one of uh, essentially breaking apart and and uh, bringing things uh, back together. And that appeared to be particularly useful uh, in this context, because we're, we're looking at reconciling and resisting now in the physical space, not that of the protesters, but in the, the physical space in which Hong Kong itself found itself. Right, and here, of course, um, I'm referring to the situation and the dramatically evolving situation of Hong Kong uh, in the, the Pearl River uh, area. 
Okay. And so in the Pearl River area, I think you talk about um, the positioning of Hong Kong and uh, the rise of um, Shenzhen. Can you, can you go further into that? Well, sure. Um, when, when we look at Hong Kong, and, and when people think about Hong Kong, they view it in a sense as is sort of like a, a, a medieval fortress uh, up on a hill surrounded by a moat with lots of land between it and the next fortress. So it's important because where it sits and here strategically it was incredibly important. And because in a sense, uh, it tends to control a strategic area and control a, a strategic function within that area. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, uh, Hong Kong served that purpose. It was uh, the most prosperous, the most well-integrated city within China uh, and well-integrated within the currents of uh, global trade as it was emerging in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, and for that reason was viewed as the centerpiece, the driving engine of everything that was going on in South China. But recall where Hong Kong is. Hong Kong is a stone's throw, by the way, these things are measured from Guangzhou. And even as the, um, the, the Chinese central authorities were moving towards the reincorporation of Hong Kong into China, they were also moving towards the reincorporation of that region into something very different. Uh, it's not for nothing that at roughly the time that all of this is going on, that Deng Xiaoping travels down and literally at the border between Hong Kong and the mainland, he says, oh, look, here's a little fishing village, less of a fishing village even by then, but here's this little village Shenzhen, um, just a, a few miles down the road from Guangzhou. What a wonderful place in which we can now build the factories, build our vision, the reform and opening up vision of the uh, of the modernizing China, the development of productive forces, the modernization of the, the state, and the, the movement towards, um, towards the, the, the new prosperity for the country by building the factories literally across the border from the place where uh, financing deals, trade uh, is actually occurring. And so all of a sudden you go from Hong Kong being this, this um, a little bit of manufacturing, but relatively speaking, to, to trade and movement of goods, right, to a place that increasingly becomes just the outward face of a much more complicated physical space that is meant to integrate and embody the entirety of the new industrial uh, and trading and finance space of China. And so all of a sudden, <clears throat> Not all of a sudden, it, it, it took uh, a generation or so. One can one finds it increasingly difficult to talk about Hong Kong in isolation, uh, and certainly from the from the perspective of the central government, and that's the point of of this. Uh, what I was extracting at this point, because it, from the the uh, the opinion uh, piece. The, the Chinese central authorities are, are more than well aware of this. And so it was curious to me that in the middle of this 
first phase of the protest that one of the things that, that should um, appear right in the process of all of this was, yeah, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Oh, look, here we go. Let's talk about Shenzhen's pioneering demonstration zone with, um, with Chinese characteristics, a reminder to all of the stakeholders, both the local authorities who were not, at least uh, as far as the central authorities were concerned, who were not quite doing their job, the protesters and the foreigners, that indeed Hong Kong was no longer detachable and that one had to begin to understand Hong Kong in a somewhat different geophysical space. So in a sense, it was almost like, you're not that special anymore. It, it's kind of, that was the messaging. Well, in part, it's, in, in part it's like, you're not that, you're not that special, but much more, you're not that unique, necessary to us. You're still important, you're still vital, you're still useful, and no, you're not going anywhere. And yes, we want to continue to support you in accordance with the way in which we view your place within this vast space uh, that is that is China with some sensitivity to your origins and to the way in which you tend to operate as, uh, you know, the, the quirks, but that understand that this is not a separate city state that has a eternal set of core liberties that can exist in isolation from everything around it, but that indeed when you start talking about all of those things, when you start talking about two systems, you have to talk about two systems as a function of where it sits within, in this case, within the Pearl River Delta, uh, Shenzhen right next door, Guangzhou and a number of other cities, and then ultimately Macau as well. Uh, and so that that integration then becomes interesting and, and interesting. And of course, the the underlining here is the the notion that, well, it's not just that that you're being integrated, but that that integration itself will drive to some extent the way in which, the central authorities will weigh and value factors that ultimately will produce the application of the limitations and constraints of the two systems part of one country, two systems. And so from a rhetorical perspective, which is where I was looking at this, right, we have a reconciliation of the resistance that is Hong Kong by not focusing on Hong Kong, but on reconciling Hong Kong within a greater space. So that Hong Kong now becomes something other than Hong Kong is Hong Kong within Pearl River, within greater China, as opposed to the resistance Hong Kong as a city state, which is itself, which can be pulled apart from and exists next to, but not necessarily integrated with uh, the rest. And so from, from my perspective, this was a very interesting intervention given timing, right, in the course of the, the protest. It, it was in, in a lot of ways rhetorical, right, in the sense that it, it served as signaling um, and 
and therefore could be seen as a warning, a warning not just to the protesters, but a warning as well to the foreigners um, and, and foreign interests. And foreign interests includes the international community, includes the, the British and, and the, the, the joint declaration uh, who might have seen in this what they viewed as a narrative of the autonomous city-state, right, within the Holy Roman Empire, right, this autonomous city-state with its own liberties um, as, as something that the, the Chinese would reject precisely because there is no autonomous city-state. There is no thing that exists in a glorious isolation. There is something that increasingly, and from the beginning of this process, was meant to be not absorbed, but was meant to ultimately become part of something larger. Within so, the I want, oh, are you done? Yeah, yes, sir. My fault, my fault. I didn't mean to cut you off. But I would like to um, finish with more of a two-part question. Yeah. Uh, first part would be, uh, was this foreseen? And was the positioning of a city like Shenzhen uh, planned just in case um, a situation like this occurred? And, uh, and so I'd like you to answer that question first. Okay, yeah. Um, opinions differ. Okay. Um, one thing I, I think everyone agrees it, it was a it was a brilliant stroke. Uh, was it meant as defensive or offensive? Uh, was it meant aggressively or or benignly? Was it meant as an integrative tool or as a tool to prevent uh, to resist? It's not clear. But even expressing it this way brings us back to that rhetorical trope of resist and reconcile, right? Resistance brings reconciliation. Reconciliation understood as a function of, of uh, resistance. And, and, uh, and, and so the answer, I think, may well be a combination of all of that. It becomes critically important, for example, that if, uh, if Hong Kong is going to be the gateway out, in a go-out policy for China to embed itself, to advance its, uh, its industrial um, engagement with emerging global production chains, it becomes important for factories to reduce costs. And one of the major costs, for example, in a very large place like China's transportation costs, if these things are being shipped out of a huge natural port, why not put this right next to the, the, the natural port? Why not have the factories close to where the deals are made? Why do you need that? Because people are going to want to do quality control checks. People are going to want to look at factories. Where better to affect technology transfers than in places where it's easier for foreigners to get in and out of? Where better to build a model socialist beacon of the China that is emerging than in a space that is um, that is open and ready for it. So you're not rehabbing, you're building this new model ideal uh, socialist embodiment of, uh, of development, right? And at the same time, 
by when you do this, you're also putting a tremendous pressure on Hong Kong in the sense that um, to the extent that, Shen, that Shenzhen becomes more and more indispensable, more and more a key element to this process, right? You develop these markers of dependency so that resistance becomes more difficult, right? Um, is it, was it a space, you know, the, was it a space from where you could invade Hong Kong if they got um, too rambunctious? Yeah, I suppose that you can find someone among the billion and a half people in China who might have taken the position. I suspect that by the, the late 90s, certainly no one thought that way. And even by the, the early 80s, it was just, um, it would have been difficult uh, to, to have gotten a lot of takers for that 60s and 70s. Uh, everything was possible, but it was a, a different way of looking at things. But certainly in terms of applying a spatial dimension to integration right, on a variety of different levels, the idea of Shenzhen was just uh, marvelous. And in this context, of course, becomes critical both to the narrative, which is uh, the point here, critical to the narrative, um, and also criti a critical reminder of the realities that um, that people were had to face on the ground. The second part of this question is a little bit unrelated, but during the um, book launch, we talked about uh, China's concerns or the central government's concerns. Um, and it was raised by one of the panelists that there may have been a belief that the sentiment from Hong Kong would be like a rot or a virus that could spread to other parts. Was there concern that it could spread to a town like Shenzhen? And does that, um, you know, force the, I guess you said the, the, um, the speech about Shenzhen or bringing them up in the speech that they made? Well, again, in, in, in a country of a billion and a half people, you're likely to find someone who would take that view. Yes. Okay. Uh, and indeed, I, I raised the issue of the, the problem of the protests uh, being a virus. And there, there had been some concern that uh, two systems might itself be, there might be a temptation for other people on the mainland to view two systems as a template for reform within China. Uh, that never really worked out all that well. And the, the Chinese, the central authorities were very, very good at border control. Okay. Were very, very good at border control. So while there may have been some leaking from time to time and in different ways, uh, and the, the nature uh, of the toleration of that was vastly different before 2013 than after 2013. It was never anything that would have caused significant worry until, right, the, the dress rehearsal was the, uh, the umbrella movement in 2014. And then boom, the, the, big, the, the big test uh, in 2019. Okay. Well, those are all the questions that we have for this chapter. Um, I will also implore everybody that is watching this to go out and buy the book. Would you like to finish us off with anything, Professor Backer? No, but again, thank you. Thank you very much. Again, another interesting discussion, but uh, 
you know, for our potential readers, just a tiny little taste, hopefully, of what you might be able to glean from the chapter itself. But thank you very much for listening in. Um, the If I leave you with any insight, it is that connectivity between Hong Kong and its place within China, the Pearl River Basin, and the second insight that that connection was very, very much on the minds, I think, of the central authorities uh, as the protests began to, to begin to develop a, a kind of permanence. It wasn't going away by, by the middle of August. And that at that point, uh, Shenzhen comes to, at least in a narrative context, uh, comes back on the table. And with that, uh, it opens up our way to begin to look towards the next phase of the, um, the, the protests and the responses from all the major actors, uh, which we will turn to when we start looking at chapter 13 for our next uh, conversation. Well, that sounds good. I can't wait for it. Okay. Well, again, thank you very much. All right. Always nice. a pleasure. Nice talking to you as well. All right.